Welcome back to another episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify. My name is Nathan Resnick, your host. Today we have a very exciting guest from Factored Quality. I've heard so much about this software and quality control tool that enables so many e-commerce brands and large brands to check their quality control. Prince, thanks so much for joining us. I want to get started by first getting to know you and your background. How did you dive into this problem of quality? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. You're a legend in the commerce and supply chain world, so it's always great to be here. My name's Prince. Like you said, I'm founder and CEO of a company called Factored Quality. My background, actually, I'm an engineer through and through. So I got my undergrad degrees in Cleveland, Ohio, at Case Western in mechanical and aerospace engineering. And I thought for the rest of my life, I was going to go and be an aerospace engineer. So coming out of college, I actually joined NASA up in Cleveland at the Glenn Research Center. And I was working on a bunch of different projects and ended up being pulled into a supply chain project where I was basically running supplier qualification across a lot of our aerospace and defense suppliers. I'm sure you're familiar with aerospace and defense is the super regulated industry, like super stringent ISO standards. And I found myself very often tapping into a lot of this data and information about our supply chain that we had stored in our ERP and writing custom scripts and writing custom software to try and understand a bit better about like exactly what was happening. And I found this to be super funny to say that, Hey, we were paying millions of dollars for this ERP. I still had to write custom software to try and even understand and pull out the data underneath it. I kept on asking myself this question of like, why aren't these enterprise systems that we store all of our supply chain data and in more intelligent, more automated? Why aren't they more collaborative across the entire product lifecycle from sourcing to product development? To- and this was at NASA. I want to cut off for a sec because this is at NASA. And to think the scale and size of NASA, and it seems like really they didn't have a quality control process in place. And you were going through their suppliers and saying, okay, how do we standardize this? And it seems like that just... That's crazy to me because NASA, they're building rockets. And to think about the pressure that those spaceships go through and the testing that is required to build those, to think that they didn't have a quality control process in place, that's nuts. Totally, man. It's funny, right? With some of these more complex supply chains, and especially with places like NASA, you realize that NASA itself doesn't really make anything. Instead, there's this really complex network of tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers, mm-hmm. and God knows how many more component suppliers, nuts and bolts suppliers underneath them. Right. Uh, so it becomes this incredibly complex challenge to answer simple questions like, hey, is this final finished product that we're going to put on a rocket that's being sent to space, is this acceptable by the quality and compliance standards that we need to hit, that we need to abide by? So I became just obsessed with this intersection of enterprise systems, data, and supply chains and manufacturing, mm-hmm. and ended up leaving NASA in 2019 to start a company called Workbench. And the entire goal of Workbench was effectively to build a modern ERP, to take the struggles that I had faced in NASA and say, hey, this places where we store our data and information about our supply chains should also be intelligent. So started this company, Workbench, along with a friend of mine from college, Lucas, and we took the company through Y Combinator, went through the winter 20. 20- And over the next two years, we built a workman and started to scale it. And we ended up finding ourselves in the e-commerce space just by virtue of realizing it was really hard to sell into aerospace defense. It was really hard to sell into a lot of regulated industries. Mm -hmm. We asked ourselves the question of like, where could we really quickly gain traction? We found ourselves in the commerce space. And through that, we actually met a team out of New York called Doris Dev. Doris Dev, who you know, and maybe a lot of folks in the ecosystem know, is a product development and supply chain management agency or mm-hmm. services firm. They basically run everything from product ideation, sourcing, QC as a service, 
shipping and logistics management for hundreds of direct-to-consumer brands. And they actually incubated their own brand called Canopy, this humidifier and beauty company that you can see behind me a few years ago. So we met the Doors team. They were design partners for hours while we were building Workbench. And at one point we realized, wait a second, this problem is so much bigger than just a software problem. A lot of companies, especially a lot of the brands in the e-commerce space that we were working with, not only struggle to house all of their information, they even right. struggle to run supplier qualifications or quality control as a managed service to begin with. So in early 2021, we started chatting with the Doors team about what would a world look like if we took the software that we had built combined it with the operations and managed services that they had built over the last couple of years at Doris Dev and spun that out into something independent that effectively looked like a technology-enabled services firm. And we did exactly that. So that was the genesis of factor quality. That's cool. I want to hop back real quick to the ERP problem because I honestly looked at this problem as well when I was starting Sourceify. And so many people complain about their ERP system from an e-commerce standpoint. And it sounds like from an aerospace standpoint too. And like most people come together, NetSuite or Salesforce or some type of system. And when I was looking at this problem, and I'm curious too, for our listeners that are tuning in, what ERP system do you use? Leave a comment and let us know. From an ERP standpoint, like it seems like so old school, but they're so dug into the trenches with these brands. So to get them to move to a new ERP is so hard to do. Was that kind of what you saw or? Totally. I think ERPs are just like a classic example of proof that better product doesn't always win and that distribution is such a king in right. especially like in selling enterprise software, right? And what we found, Nate, was if you look at like ERP, and for those who don't know, right, ERP stands for Enterprise Resource Planning. It's really this catch-all term to describe many different parts of a company's operations, everything from housing accounts payable, accounts receivable. Sometimes ERPs house your bill of materials. Sometimes it's your master supplier list. Sometimes you also have a PLM system that you're using in conjunction with an ERP, mm -hmm. just depending on how much product development you're doing. Sometimes you also have a warehouse management system. If you own your own warehouse, you have an MR if you right. own your own manufacturers and all these systems are supposed to talk to each other. And I think the big challenge is like historically the big ERP providers, you know, SAP, NetSuite, Oracle, et cetera, they become so entrenched in some of these companies' operational processes. If someone is using an existing ERP, no matter how much people hate it, it's so incredibly difficult to actually right. see it. So that's mm -hmm. on like the established enterprise side. Conversely, if you look at some of these like startups, like up and coming companies, a lot of startups, they outsource a lot of their operations and a lot of their product development to firms like Doorstep or to their factories and suppliers themselves. So they don't even need ERPs or for a lot of companies that are like in between, maybe like right. Series C, Series D companies, they've built a lot of homegrown systems themselves. I remember to this day, Nate, like a few years ago when we were in YC and Y Combinator, Airtable, they like put out a new like launch of a bunch of Airtable affirmations. And one of the things I remember seeing is it was one of either I think Dollar Shave Club or Warby or Harry's, like mm -hmm. one of these really well-known DTC brands. It was an entire case study of how they basically built out an ERP using Airtable and a bunch wow. of automations <laughs> via Xavier. I remember thinking, I was like, oh geez, like how am I supposed to compete with like free on the other end for a lot of these upstarts? So the ERP problem is like as much a business model and go-to-market mm -hmm. problem is an actual software and product problem. Totally, and I know, so diving more into the story, a lot of founders ask, both on the e-commerce side and tech side, there's a lot of software providers in the e-commerce ecosystem that tune in too. What was YC like from your perspective? I went through in 2018. I'm curious from your perspective, what was it like? Was it beneficial? What were the main takeaways there? Yeah, it's a great question. So 
I think there's a couple of different parts. And what I'll preface with is, so YC is actually still an active member on Factor Quality's cap table. We're still a part of YC's community, and we brought a bunch of our investors along from the transition from Workbench into Factor Quality. So it's an ecosystem we still tap in. I would say the single most beneficial thing about YC is how much they really enunciate this notion of focus. And I think that's something that like, it's so easy to get distracted by, right? Like you can talk about partnerships, you can talk about the new product features you're building. You can talk about like this, that, this, that. When you show up to your office hours, every YC session, it's what is your one-liner? Okay, this is my one-liner. What are you building? Okay, this is what I'm building. Who do you sell to? This is who I sell to. How much were you doing in revenue or whatever is your North Star metric last mm -hmm. week? This is how much I was doing. How much are you doing this week? I'm doing 20% more. I'm doing 10% less. And this thing that they instill in you in YC is if you can just boil it down to those fundamentals and just grow incrementally week over week, that becomes exponential growth month over month. That becomes hyper right. exponential growth year over year and like small improvements compound. And I think that's something that's so hard to intuitively understand. Like humans are just terrible at understanding power laws. Right? Right. And until you can break that down to say like linear change on a weekly basis becomes exponential change on a monthly basis. That's the beauty of YCs. They boil it down and they just like hammer that into there's no tomorrow. So I think that's right. one of the takeaways during. And then of course, there's just this like great community, meet people like each other, have endless number of friends, et cetera, from the YC community. So those are all advantages too. Yeah, yeah, it's such a, a key component is just having focus, right? And I think even speaking from the e-commerce angle right now, right, so many brands are in this challenging position where they grew like crazy during COVID. They had this kind of COVID balloon and acquisition was a lot easier than it is right now. And now I think this Q4, this holiday season, what have you seen from your customers on the factored quality end in terms of what challenges they're facing, what volume's looking like? I know at Sourceify, just it seems like, Q4 is still strong, but not quite as hyped and exciting and go big as it was the past two years, because yeah. just, I think, consumer sediment in terms of this macro economic environment is a lot different than was the past two years. And I think that's affected the e-commerce ecosystem as a whole. And that's in addition to obviously the tracking challenges that every brand is facing right now across ad platforms. Totally. I think if I were to summarize kind of sentiment into two words, one would be uncertainty and the other directly related is just fluctuation. Much things are fluctuating on a day-to-day -day basis, right? right? I think where this really plays into is like, it starts from a consumer sentiment behavior. Like as a consumer myself, as a consumer yourself, mm -hmm. sure, like you log on every day and it's a different news story. Like interest rates right. are up and right. inflation is down. Like inflation is up and it's like, it's so hard to know even what decisions as a buyer to make. Like thinking right. about small things, like should I sign a lease for an apartment that I'm going to start mm -hmm. with next year? Am I like overpaying? Mm -hmm ends up trickling down into consumer purchasing decisions of, am I going to buy furniture for that apartment? Who am I going to mm -hmm. buy from? And like, it really does end up mattering. So as a function, what ended up happening is I think we've just seen a lot of confusion and where this really manifested into demand planning has gotten really freaking hard. And I think right. there is like a enormous business for whoever can really crack the demand planning secret that a lot of brands are struggling with. There's a few companies that we're fortunate to partner with and know there's a company called Fuse Inventory, who I'm a big fan of on the demand planning side and we've sent customers to, but it's become so hard to really understand how much are you going to sell? And as a function, how large of a purchase order should you place with your manufacturer? And there's also so much happening still from port shutdowns, delays in shipment, you ship via C. These are the questions that are, I think, like constantly floating around people's heads and finding that optimization has right. become just so much 
So right. I think like in conclusion, if there was a piece of advice or anything to come out of it, I think the only thing that we've seen consistently work is people who have built agility into their supply chains and agility into their forecasts are the ones who right. succeeded. People who are willing to place purchase orders of smaller units, but have a good enough relationship with their factory to be able to place more or less accordingly, as opposed to necessarily placing like single, large, massive POs for large amounts right. of inventory. Like agility right. here is worth investing in. It's the only mm -hmm. thing that I think mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I want to dive into when someone should uh, engage factory quality, right? Let's say it's, I guess, number one, what size brand do you typically target that you want to go after and that should get in touch with you? And number two, where do you fit in the picture? Hey, I'm expanding into a new factory and I need to do audits on that factory or, hey, I've got a production one that's finishing. I need to do a quality inspection before the container's loaded. Talk to us a bit about what brands should work with factory quality and where you are fitting in the process. Yeah, so maybe for a quick primer about factory quality, we help consumer goods brands run quality control across their global supply chains. And we can embed ourselves or enter across a number of different parts of the supply chain or product life cycle. So the first teams that oftentimes work with us are sourcing teams. So when brands go out and source new suppliers, they will often send us in to do factory audits or supplier audits. And these can be like SEDEX or BSCI audits for specific compliance standards, or these can be just like process audits. The second team that often uses us is product development teams to do what's called inline inspections, where we can actually inspect goods as they're coming fresh off the production line, either at a component level or at a final finished product level. We can also do pre-shipment inspections. So a lot of supply chain teams and continuous production teams use us to inspect goods after production is finished before they're shipped back over domestically to be sold. We can run testing and compliance. So brands use us to run testing as a service. And we do that in partnership with a national lab, like an SGS, Intertech, BDI. But we just facilitate that entire process. Testing and compliance teams use us. And then we work with a lot of like production and quality teams on inventory audits. So we can inspect inventory that's in the U.S., do anything from inventory counts to actually inspecting the quality of the goods that have been shipped over, inspecting packaging. So. All this is to say there's multiple points in which we can enter a company's supply chain or just depending on like where your need is. Have you manufactured product? Is it in the US? Do you just want to inspect that? Are you going and sourcing a new supplier? I would say there's no brand that's honestly too small to start using factory quality. We work with brands that are placing their first ever PO at their first factory, or they might not have even placed their first PO. They right. might still just be in the supplier qualification process and they'll mm -hmm. bring us in to run supplier audits. And we just act as their eyes and ears on the ground at their local supply chains on behalf of them. And all of this is facilitated through a software platform that makes it really easy to book these inspectors. It's awesome. We go all the way up to working with like really large enterprises that do billions of dollars in revenue. And we serve as extensions of their team for specific product lines or as so much is happening, especially on the production side, I feel like the one thing we've consistently seen is a brand that historically maybe had 20 factories in China now has 10 factories in China and then another 10 mm -hmm. spread across all different parts of the world. So especially for a lot of these large enterprises that are starting to diversify their supplier base to just, we've come into play and we've served as their eyes and ears on the ground at those right. local regions on behalf of them. Makes sense. I want to ask, because I think a lot of people will be curious, how did you assemble your team across so many different regions and different factories and the follow-up question to that is around diversification, right? Obviously, the kind of trade wars and tariffs really push people to look outside of China. And now I think just with the macroeconomic situation in China and kind of political dynamics, a lot of people have looked to move production outside of China. You just saw Apple start to announce more and more of their production is going to move outside of China. And I yeah. think it's just going to trickle down to 
mid-size and small-size e-commerce brands that want to really push for diversification outside of China. But first off, how did you like even assemble this incredible team that you have? Totally. So there's multiple parts to it. So we're actually a fairly lean team across factor quality, and we've got folks situated all across the U.S., Europe, and Hong Kong. And we basically have folks in those different places overseeing operations, and our head of operations, Adar, who actually runs our entire QC process and program, he sits out of Germany. So as that global left and right visibility. In terms of actually assembling our own team through a multiple of different factors, actually part of the team came from DoorsDev and had been running their operations out of Hong Kong for a while. As we spun out of DoorsDev, we took that team with us and that's how we were able to establish our presence in Hong Kong, which has been super valuable to oversee production in East Asia and Southeast Asia. We had to hire folks across different parts of the world in different regions. But I think the part that's particularly interesting here is like our QC inspector base. So we have a global base of about 2,000 plus inspectors in all these different regions in the world in about 22 countries. And we've built up our global network over the last five years through our time at Doris and then over the last year through factor quality itself. And what we do is basically in every new region that we think there's going to be an uptick in production, or at least our customers are going to start manufacturing in, we will go out and we will find trained and vetted quality control inspectors or inspection agencies in all these different regions of the world. So for example, like we recently expanded into Vietnam, we recently expanded into India. And you could, Nate, like today go and Google like quality control inspector India and you would come up with 200 results. And it's this big question, just like vetting factories, like how do I vet these inspectors? How do I know that they know their stuff? We take totally. care of the recruiting process, the sourcing process, the vetting process, and we bring all these inspectors onto our network as vendors and we have long-term relationships with them. So through this kind of hybrid model of having like our own ops team and then having this global network of vendors, that's how right. we're able to reach almost any big manufacturing hub across the entire world and how we've been that's able to awesome. expand along with our customers. That's great. And then in terms of diversification, what's the current pulse that you're seeing amongst your customers and then just kind of your general pulse in terms of what you're seeing in the media and from your team globally. Should an average e-commerce brand really be looking outside of China? And if so, what kind of parameters should they be looking at to diversify outside of China? Yeah, I think as with many of these large like geopolitical macro topics, there's a whole lot of nuance to it that I'm sure you saw firsthand during your source by time and like still are seeing firsthand. And the answer I think is it really depends on what you care about, right? What I mean by that is, I do not think that there will ever be an end to Chinese manufacturing. I think there will be specific product categories that will always thrive in China. Mm -hmm. For example, what we've seen is like consumer electronics will probably continue to be centered in Shenzhen. Like they've developed so much CapEx infrastructure in certain regions that it just doesn't make sense. Also, there's just a whole lot of institutional knowledge that's housed in these specific regions of the world. And there's an entire other argument around like what happens with an aging Chinese workforce. And we're seeing that right now, which is what we saw in the US over the last like 10 and 15 years in certain industries like automotive manufacturing and in processes like welding. And we're starting to see that across certain product categories in China. So I think that's like a separate conversation. But I think what we are seeing is a few different product categories going to different parts of the world. We're seeing like a lot of footwear and apparel moving to Korea, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. We're seeing a lot of like automotive actually move to Mexico, South America. I think a lot of food and beverage has and will continue to be done in the U.S. because I think there's like a nuanced understanding of even 
what is your unique product development cycle, right? For a food and bed company where a whole lot of your IP is your taste, your texture of the food, you right. want to be near your co-packer or at least near your filler, your final assembler to be able to go into that really close feedback loop on a product development cycle. Maybe you'll source your cans or your bottles, or your labels, or your packaging from China or from a different part of the world, but your final production and assembly may be done in the US. So I think the answer just really goes back to, it depends on product category. It depends on how tolerant you are to cost and how much cost as opposed to necessarily like shipping risk is important to you, right? Like you can probably drive down your cogs producing in China. You might increase your shipping risk and be a little bit less agile in terms of like, how quickly can you get production fulfilled to your final end customer? So these are just like, it's a multi-dimensional problem. And mm -hmm. I think as a founder, it's really critical to be like hyper thoughtful of this multi-dimensional problem and decide what is critical to you and what is critical to your brand and what is right. your operating model and your cash flow look like right now to be able to make these decisions. Totally. That's a great answer. It makes a lot of sense. I want to wrap up here with one kind of final question that's more a case study for factored quality. I assume Help Canopy, which is this humidifier brand that you have behind you, just take off like a rocket ship. So I'm curious to learn, number one, a bit about the product development process and branding and marketing process in terms of how this e-commerce brand really went from zero to 100 really fast. I've yeah. seen it all over online and I know a lot of people have talked about it in the news. So I think it's a incredible product that's come out of Doris Dev. And I assume factory quality had a large part in making sure that product was produced to meet its quality standard. So if you can just give a glimpse inside for people of how did that product come to be? What was the launch strategy? And then how did factored quality help out and make sure that product was yeah, full disclaimer, like Canopy is its own team and there's folks from the Doris and Canopy team who can speak about this way better than I can, but maybe just to give like a 10,000 foot insight here. I think the really unique thing about Canopy was they found a very particular niche in Canopy's case at the intersection of wellness and beauty that they really wanted to build in. And they saw a gap there. And especially at the price point that they're building from a COGS perspective and then selling Canopy at, it was really this instance of striking upon gold, or at least so it may seem from the outside, but there was a ton of thought and effort put into it. It wasn't just, we want to build a humidifier brand. It was like, okay, how do we position this in a way that no one else really has? And if you go to Canopy's website, there's a whole bunch of use cases like Canopy for like new moms, Canopy for babies, Canopy for the effects and benefits of like humidifiers for skincare. And I think one of the things that Canopy has done really well and like lending into where factor quality plays is, They've really focused on this notion of what is it that we at Canopy want to own and what else can we outsource to different vendors and service providers in the ecosystem to maintain that agility and run lean. So for example, like what Canopy is phenomenal at is brand and marketing and telling its story and positioning in the market, right? But then to actually execute, they depend on different agencies and different service providers. Doris Dev actually does the product development or Canopy, and then same thing on the marketing side, same thing on the growth side, same thing on the ad side, and then factor quality on the quality control and production oversight side. So it really is this team effort, but I think like one of the, going back to like YC's lesson about focus, right? I see a lot of the time, and I'm guilty of it myself, of just doing too much, wanting to own too much. And I think the thing that's hyper, you gotta be hyper cognizant of is, we all have 24 hours in a day. We need to eat, sleep, rest, and spend some time with family. So in those remaining hours of the day that we're working, it's critical for us to decide what is the most important thing for us to work on and own at this moment in time, and then ask that question, is there someone who can do all the different parts of our product life cycle better than we can? So I think if you can be hyper diligent at that, you can build yourself a healthy, flourishing business the way that Canopy has.
Prince, I think my takeaway from this conversation is we all need to focus more. I appreciate you coming on. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. And where can people find you? Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. It was great to chat, Nate. We're at factoredquality.com. We're on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I think at PrinceCoach97. So please feel free to reach out if there's any way that we can help. Awesome. Thank you again, Prince. Awesome. Sounds good. Take care, Nate. Thank you for listening to e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify. If you could like and subscribe, we'd greatly appreciate it. And please keep an eye out for our next episode.